You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by one of the country's leading intelligence historians. That's Matthew Aid. He's the author in 2010 of The Secret Century, The Untold History of the National Security Agency. Really a remarkable work. And now in January 2012, he has out his latest work, Intel Wars, The Secret History of the Fight Against Terror. Matthew Aid, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Well, Matthew, uh, as probably many of our listeners will know, you not, they'll not only be familiar with your book about NSA, but know that you know more broadly, NSA and, and really studying the history of Cold War signals intelligence has been sort of your thing. So this book is a bit of a bit of a new direction for you. How did you come to write about uh, you know Intel Wars and the war on terrorism? Uh, because I had started taking trips over to South Asia, you know, to Afghanistan and. Uh, and Pakistan starting in 2008 as part of my work. Um, yes, I, I'm best known for writing, you know, voluminous, you know, tracks on signals intelligence. But, you know, it's, we, we live in a real world. And if you want to write about intelligence in the context of, you know, what, what is it doing today? Uh, I mean, then you have to, you know, you, there are obviously very few declassified documents. And uh, people here in Washington are very reluctant to speak unless, you know, you're a member of the Washington Post. Uh, so what I, what I thought about doing was rather than write another book about, you know, from the, you know, the perspective of the, you know, the conference table in the White House Situation Room, which has already been written, was actually to try and transport readers to the battlefields uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iran and elsewhere, and tell the story from the point of view of the intelligence operator and analyst. 
rather than you know, another political book about you know how the president of the United States pushed this button and this happened uh, three or eight thousand miles away, and so you know I, I think the point I was trying to get across in writing this book is that you know in the ten years since nine eleven, I mean there's been a, a vast sea change in the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, you know, every, I think most people suspect that, you know, given the amount of money that has been pumped into it, you know, over the last 10 years, and it has been uh, now over 10 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, uh, virtually every agency in the intelligence community um, has changed and changed dramatically. Uh, they're larger, they're better funded, uh, they're now 200 about 210,000 men and women performing the intelligence function, uh, both here in the United States and overseas. Uh, they're very well funded. And I think the, the most important point, or it's, you know, there are sort of corollary points I wanted to make, is that contrary to a lot of the criticism of the intelligence community uh, that came out in the 9-11 Commission about, you know, you had a bunch of you know, independent agencies that didn't work well with one another. Uh, Today's intelligence community is producing more and better intelligence than probably at any point uh, in its history. Uh, and the, uh, the analysis that is ending up on President Obama's desk is, I'd say, an order of magnitude better than it was a decade ago. More nuanced, you know, more detailed, and most importantly, right. Uh, I, I cite in the book examples of how the CIA, or you know, the actually the CIA doesn't run the analytic program anymore. The national intelligence officers uh, within the uh, National Intelligence Council um, have written a number of very sober uh, intelligence estimates over the last three years. There have been a lot more pessimistic or sober is the word you use than what the administration's been saying publicly about exactly. the progress of Afghanistan and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes. And, uh, you know, which, you know, is, I mean, that's the job of the intelligence community to, to speak, speak truth, truth to, to power. power. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think the intelligence community has done a remarkably good job especially on the big-ticket items, meaning Afghanistan, Pakistan, the war on terror uh, in general. Uh, I mean, there have been a few hiccups, like uh, the national intelligence estimates uh, that uh, on Iran, for example, which are the subject of uh, considerable controversy today. But the community had raw intelligence to back up its analysis. The problem is, you know, here in, we live here in Washington, where a lot of people oftentimes don't like uh, the tenor and tone of what is contained in the reporting that comes out of the intelligence community. Well, you know, but that's that's their job. And so I wanted to tell that story, but also at the same time make the point that all that being said, you know, better collection, uh, better analysis, you know, there's bet more sharing of intelligence within the community, uh, better product, we still... 10 years after 9-11 haven't fixed a lot of the fundamental flaws, structural flaws, uh, within the intelligence community. This is the part where everybody immediately yawns and immediately switches channels, uh, you know. Uh, but, I mean, it's this was one of the major criticisms by the 9-11 Commission. And we saw some of the problems. 
when the former director of national intelligence, uh, Admiral Dennis Blair, tried to rein in what he thought were some of the excesses of the CIA in terms of running the unmanned drone strike programs in Pakistan and some of their other uh, activities. And Blair was overruled by the White House. Yeah, you really paint Admiral Blair, the briefly the director of national intelligence, uh, President Obama's first DNI, as sort of a tragic figure, really. He, I, I actually, I believe he was a tragic figure in the sense that whether you agree with his positions on key issues is, I mean, that's, you know, intelligent, intelligent men and women do disagree on, uh, on these uh, subjects. But the fact is that, you know, at his core, he was trying to do what his job description said he was supposed to do, which was to be the intelligence czar of the United States. And it uh, irked him to no end that, uh, you know, some agencies, in particular the CIA, uh, refused to acknowledge his authority as the director of national intelligence and continued to go off and do things on their own. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, I think it was the cause of his, uh, his demise and untimely resignation from his job. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, he is a tragic figure because, you know, I, I guess it's my, it's one of the beats I have, which is that if we want our intelligence system to work well, we need a strong leader at the top where all agencies work in harmony with one another, with one man beating the drum like a Roman slave galley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, we, American intelligence history is filled with, uh, you know, strong-willed men at the top of agencies who really made a, a positive change in the way their agencies were run, like Walter Bidell Smith at the CIA, and uh, there were uh, Admiral Bobby Inman at NSA, and there have been others. And Blair was not given the opportunity to, you know, to provide the kind of strong leadership. Maybe he was the wrong person for the job. Uh, maybe he wasn't, you know, uh, as much of an SOB as he needed to be, you know, to to hold that position. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, and now we have General Jim Clapper, who is not, you know, making so many waves as his predecessor. Let's. Um, I want to turn just for a minute to NSA because you have such remarkable depth of expertise uh, with NSA. Do you want to talk for a moment about how NSA has adapted and changed uh, since 9/11? What What has NSA been up to, and and are they similarly? I mean, your overall picture of the community, notwithstanding the caveat that you just gave, has been one of really strong performance. Do you think that that applies to NSA specifically? Oh, yeah. NSA. There, there are two agencies who have performed particularly well in the last decade. One is the CIA, uh, which has uh, you know, done remarkable work in, in some parts of the world. But the National Security Agency has uh, had some remarkable technical successes in the last 10 years. Uh, which, of course, you know, must remain unacknowledged in order to ensure that, you know, these programs are not compromised in any way. Uh, but, you know, it's clear that cyber war, as many people call it, the ability to reach out and get into somebody's computer, that's the new, that's the new cryptologic, uh, 
uh, fashion du jour up at the National Security Agency, the day, you know, the days of the big listening posts and the gigantic antennas and uh, thousands of boys and girls crammed into uh, sweaty listening posts listening to radio traffic. Those days are essentially gone now. Uh, NSA has re-engineered itself into a cyber intelligence gathering organization. It's uh, it's faster, it's leaner, uh, and the kind of intelligence it's producing, especially on terrorist targets, uh, is, uh, by all accounts, uh, quite remarkable. So are you suggesting, then, that NSA has adapted itself from being an organization that's primarily devoted to stealing information in motion, i.e. information when it's being transmitted, when I send a, when I pick up the phone and make a phone call, or when, uh, you know, the, uh, a foreign ministry sends a cable to one that's devoted to primarily devoted to stealing data at rest, i.e. data that's just sitting on a hard drive uh, or on a server somewhere in a server farm in, pick your favorite country? <laughs> no, actually, you know, as, as I understand it, you know, the, the collection process, the signals intelligence collection process today is very dynamic. It's, uh, NSA is not just you know, getting into somebody's uh, hard drive and uh, and you know vacuuming out you know the contents. Uh, emails are being uh, intercepted and read in real time thanks to some incredibly sophisticated uh, software packages that have been produced in the last decade. Uh, you know, there's uh, digital data streams that are coursing. Uh, around the world, uh, or you know, through satellites or underwater, you know, cables, fiber optic systems—they're all being exploited by NSA. Also, I mean, that's at the strategic level, but at the tactical level, you know, in Afghanistan and uh, you know, until recently in Iraq and other places around the world, you know, you, know, you have uh, military intercept teams providing real-time intelligence. Uh, to combat commanders down to the company level, which is unheard of, or was unheard of 10 years ago. But now you have battalion and company commanders that are getting real-time signals intelligence, uh, which is uh, defining and shaping the battle, you know, the battle space today uh, all over the world. So, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable change that has taken place. You mentioned CIA as being the other organization that you thought had really particularly stepped up to the plate. Uh, the first thing that most Americans think about when they think about CIA is uh, it's the agency that, that primarily, not exclusively, but primarily conducts espionage for us. Uh, do you have any sense here? Have we done recruiting sources inside Al Qaeda? Uh, if the people who know, you know obviously would not have told me this would rate, you know, several code words above uh, my unclassified clearance level. Uh, I, I don't know what I don't know, and, uh, and that's perfectly proper. What I do know is that, uh, particularly in the Middle East, South Asia, um, and some of the battlefields in, um, in Asia, where uh, militant terrorist groups have been very active, and I'm thinking in terms of the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, the CIA has been very active and very successful in terms of uh, providing, collecting and providing intelligence to consumers about what uh, the bad guys are up to. For example, uh, in the Philippines, the terrorist group Abu Sayyaf, 
which is you know uh, generally accepted to be an affiliate of Al Qaeda, has basically been decimated uh, over the past ten years by very good intelligence work, in part by the CIA, but also by military intelligence teams, you know, working out in the field, uh, along with uh, Philippine troops, you know, to destroy this organization. One of the big controversies about the Iraq War, well, one of many controversies about the Iraq War, was uh, the claim that it supposedly diverted scarce intelligence resources from where, from Afghanistan, uh, where they were, you know, deep in the fight against uh, al-Qaeda, uh, al-Qaeda Central, and against the Taliban. Uh, is this a, laying aside other issues relating to the Iraq War, is that a fair critique in and of itself? I think it's, I think just at a generic level, it's a fair critique uh, you talk to the the operators in the field, the collectors, and they will tell you that well, you know, back in uh, you know the earlier you know like eight nine years ago, I mean resources were scarce, and so and the number of people who spoke uh, Arabic or Pashto or Dari or some of the other arcane languages spoken in that part of the world were really in short supply, and particularly those individuals whose linguistic talents were sophisticated enough to understand slang or whose analytic knowledge of the region was, you know, above just basic reading the New York Times and Washington Post. So, yeah, I mean, there there was some diversion of assets away from Afghanistan after uh, we invaded uh, the country in the October of 2001. Uh, and and I think at an analytic level, you know, I sort of I have I'm differentiating between collectors and analysts here. Uh, what happened is a lot of the people working, you know, in the National Intelligence Council, who ordinarily would have continued to focus on the terrorist aspects in Afghanistan, got shunted over to you know more you know more urgent targets, meaning Iraq, and uh, and that region. And so we lost continuity coverage. Uh, you want to explain the importance of continuity coverage? Continu- what do you mean by that? Continuity coverage simply means you maintain a constant state of vigilance on a high priority target. And, you know, but, you know, we live in a day, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world where, you know, you had sufficient resources, uh, both money and, pers- and trained personnel, where you could keep fixed on a target. Uh, with no, you know, no slippage in coverage, uh, based on the vagaries of, of you know, geopolitical events taking place around the world. That's not the world we live in. In fact, the intelligence community has a, a nasty habit of taking resources from one problem to handle the crisis du jour, and the phrase that is often used is surge. Uh, we will surge resources into the Iraq problem, but we'll take the resources out of Afghanistan or Pakistan. So on the one hand, we've got a really unprecedentedly large intelligence community now. I think you gave the figure of something on the order of 210,000 people. But on the other hand, what I think I hear you saying is that for a lot of these problems, it really boils down to making up, making these numbers up. But we need people with, you know, fluent level native Dari, and there's six of them in the entire community. Well, uh, that, you know, the, the, the overall figure of $80 billion or something like that and 210,000 people is sort of misleading for a lot of specific problems on a particular date in a particular place. Absolutely true. And now, you know, just to address to the, the language 
you know, issue, which you hearken to, five, six, seven, eight years ago, we had so few people who spoke uh, the three languages uh, spoken in Afghanistan that we literally had to fly recruiters out to Fremont, California, which is the home of the largest population of uh, Afghanis in the United States and offer these gentlemen, most of whom were in their 40s or 50s and were not uh, trained spies, $100,000 plus contracts to come and uh, sit in NSA listening posts with headphones on and listen to what their countrymen 8,000 miles away were saying into their walkie-talkies. That's how desperate we were for personnel. Since that time, uh, our language schools have cranked out hundreds, if not thousands, of reasonably talented language experts, and over time they'll get more. You know, they'll get better uh, skilled in their in their uh, you know, respective languages, assuming they don't get you know taken out of that language and told to learn something else, uh, and become they're allowed to become experts in their field. Uh, so, you know, we now, we're you depending on contractors to a far lesser degree than we were five years ago for those arcane skills uh, that, you know, that's which is what we desperately needed. So we, we've finally had the time to grow those skills inside the government itself. Absolutely correct. You, you were, we, we've been talking about Afghanistan here for a minute. Uh, of course, the big, uh, the big stories these days out of Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, which are, you know, basically inseparable problems in one sense. Uh, is the campaign of uh, drone strikes um, uh, against al-Qaeda, Taliban, and other similar sorts of targets, uh, particularly in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, at the tactical level, these have been pretty successful, i.e., when we're, we're pretty good at identifying targets, and when we shoot at you, you're probably going to die. Yes. Um, <laughs> but in a, in a bigger picture sense, sort of in the operational and strategic level, is this getting us anything? Is this getting us any closer to victory? The Americans have, a um, in, the, in the military and, and, and you could argue in the intelligence realm, a, a great history of, of technical and tactical success, but not necessarily so good at making it add up to anything. What's your assessment on, on the, the drone issue specifically? Well, the drone, I'll, I'll take... You know, you're absolutely right. You know, on the battlefields in Afghanistan and previously in Iraq, um, you know, these drones flying 10, you know, 10,000 feet, you know, they, they literally can, you know, put a missile on home plate at Yankee Stadium, you know, flying at the same altitude as a jetliner, which is, you know, a remarkable skill. They can provide vast amounts of intelligence information, so much so that they literally are swamping the analysts with too much data. But in the case of Pakistan, you know, you, you have two schools of thought. Uh, you know, you have uh, some of the uh, senior officials uh, at CIA headquarters who believe that the drone has basically all by itself uh, been largely responsible for the destruction or the near destruction of al-Qaeda. It's true. I mean, uh, uh, if you do the body count, and I hate body counts, uh, because they tell you absolutely nothing, uh, and they're a very poor measuring stick for you know determining whether you're winning or losing a war. But the boys out at Langley love metrics, and they love to be able to say, "Well, we." And President Obama just a, uh, you know a couple days ago was criticized for being weak in the war on terror, and his response was, "Well, we've killed." Um, 
we killed uh, Osama bin Laden on May 1st of this year, and we've taken out 22 of the top 30 al-Qaeda leaders. Absolutely true. But a lot of the lower-level analysts uh, at the Director of National Intelligence Office and even at Langley and the State Department believe that these drone strikes have created just as many uh, problems as they have solved, uh, particularly the Pakistani government. Uh, you know, everyone knows that our relationship with the Pakistani government has been deteriorating rapidly uh, for the you know probably the last three years, but in particular in 2011 was a very bad year. And the relationship has gotten to the point now where the CIA has now had to suspend drone operations over Pakistan for significant periods of time uh, because the Pakistani military would no longer give us overflight rights uh, over their country. And this happened after uh, Osama bin Laden was killed in May. There was a several-week hiatus in drone strikes. And uh, more recently, uh, last month, uh, U.S. warplanes and helicopter gunships killed 24 Pakistani border guards. And uh, since that you know, horrific incident, there have been no drone strikes for the last six weeks. The CIA says, well, we've suspended the operations, but the truth is the Pakistanis won't let us fly over their airspace anymore. And... You know, so, I mean, this is just part of the problem. You know, we're down to the what uh, some of my friends in the community call the nub. There are very few targets uh, left, yeah, you know, in northern Pakistan, you know, al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda officials and, uh, and soldiers hiding away. Uh, we're down to the point where uh, it's almost a, a law of diminishing return. You keep two or three drones flying 24-7 over uh, northern Pakistan, and they maybe take a shot once a week at a target. So we're reaching the point of diminishing returns. You, had, you, you quoted a senior U.S. intelligence official in your book as saying something in this connection that I found absolutely striking. And you quoted this person as saying, quote, Capturing al-Qaeda officials is a bother. It's so much easier just to kill them when you find them. And I'm wondering if what the import of this is. I mean, I would read that as saying that because as a country we've, we've, we have been unable to come up with a way that we find legally, morally, and politically sustainable to handle prisoners, that now instead of capturing people, we just blow them to little tiny bits. Is that basically what's going on here, or am I being too cynical? Well, your cynicism usually is, uh, is, has some basis in fact, and you know, opinion varies widely on this subject, but I think the facts speak for themselves. We have not captured um, a senior al-Qaeda or even a middle-level al-Qaeda official uh, probably in going on six or seven years now. We've killed hundreds, if not thousands, of al-Qaeda foot soldiers and, you know, bomb makers and senior officials, uh, including Osama bin Laden. Uh, but, you know, it, it's you don't see a lot of effort and uh, being made by the intelligence community or the military to actually, actually capture these guys. Which I find fascinating because you can get all sorts of intelligence benefits right when you capture someone right. which I mean, you usually can't get when you blow them up exactly i mean we're 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 looking at this problem as former intelligence analysts which is you know a, the gist for our mill to understand our enemy you know our our target is you know interrogation i mean you know to actually talk to these people 
and get intelligence out of them about, you know, the enemy, what is their state, you know, what is their strength, capabilities. And if you're not capturing any of these people, there's sort of like a giant hole in your knowledge base about, you know, the enemy that we claim to be fighting uh, and trying to destroy. Uh, so, I mean, you know, at that level, there's a real problem. And But I think from a political point of view, you know, you have to remember that uh, President Obama promised to, quote, you know, close the Guantanamo Bay detention facility uh, in his first week in office. It's still going strong. Uh, there have been no prosecutions of any of the Al you know, captured Al-Qaeda terrorists uh, now being held at Guantanamo, again, for uh, a variety of political and legal issues. And so, yeah, you can understand why, you know, a senior you know, White House official would, would say it's just too much of a bother, both politically, you know, we capture one of these people and suddenly, you know, we we're, it's like attracting flack. You know, the best, it's so much easier, simpler, you know, no brouhaha, just blow them to, to smithereens. Last couple of questions here. I want to turn a little bit more to the home front. Uh, first, sort of a, just a, a smaller question. You had a fascinating uh, section in the book where you talked about a fleet of FBI aircraft uh, operating secretly uh, in Virginia. You want to tell us a little bit about that? And how did you get onto this story? It's, well, it's not much of a secret if, if someone like, like myself can get hold of it. And how I came about, I, I live in Washington, D.C. I like to go out on my balcony and have coffee in the morning. And I kept noticing that these um, helicopters were flying back and forth over northwest D.C. And, uh, you know, you know that, you know, since 9-11, no civil aircraft can fly over Washington, D.C., only government uh, planes and helicopters. And they were buzzing around my, my neighborhood like flies uh, around in a you know, bad stake. And so what I started doing is taking down the tail numbers of the, of the helicopters as they flew their missions. And, you know, there, you know, you can go to the, uh, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration's database of, uh, of all aircraft in the United States and, uh, you, you put in the tail number of the aircraft or helicopter and it tells you who owns it. And it turns out that all of these, uh, helicopters or aircraft were owned by four or, sorry, five, uh, proprietary companies, you know, basically front companies uh, that had been set up uh, during the Clinton, uh, you know, the Clinton administration in the 1990s to own and operate uh, over 130 aircraft and helicopters uh, that the, air, the FBI uses to conduct surveillance in the United States. So why are they flying over northwest Washington? That's the are they watching you, Matthew? No, I, I'm not. I have, I, I have... I have no doubt that I'm of little, if any, interest to the law enforcement community of the United States. But the question is valid. I mean, Northwest D.C. is the home of power brokers, lawyers, accountants, congressmen, and senators, and uh, and pretty women hanging out by swimming pools. And uh, is there an Al Qaeda presence in Northwest Washington? Uh, uh, that I don't know about. Uh, well, well, along those lines, you did mention that uh, there was a bit of a disagreement, as you saw it, between the FBI on the one hand and most of the rest of the intelligence community on the other hand about the extent of the domestic threat posed by domestic Islamist terrorists, of, you know, of the Al-Qaeda ilk. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it, 
you know, I wish, I wish uh, for the sake of posterity that uh, you know, we were back in the business of, of offering unclassified summaries of national intelligence estimates on key topics. Uh, but most of the, uh, in fact, all of the national intelligence estimates that have been produced by the intelligence community over the past decade on you know, the war on terror always have a section on domestic terrorism. And invariably, the community has, the analysts uh, have, have reached a consensus opinion that say, well, you know, there's, there's still very much, the, you know, uh, there's a problem with lone wolf terrorists, you know, some, you know, dis, you know disenchanted individual packing his uh, station wagon uh, with ammonium nitrate and bl- trying to blow up Times Square, which is, you know, almost happened. Sounds vaguely familiar. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, but... In terms of whether there's a you know a network of Al Qaeda sleeper cells, or you know there sort of a is there a terrorist infrastructure hiding beneath the surface uh, the, you know the surface of urban and rural America? The intelligence community takes the position and has consistently uh, held this position. No, I mean you know we we searched and searched for years after 9/11 and could not find any evidence of Al Qaeda sleeper cells or networks or infrastructures uh, comparable to what uh, it was found in Europe at the time. The FBI uh, took the position, basically rejected the findings and said, "Look, you're, that's that's wonderful that you CIA and uh, and uh, DIA analysts have." have come to that conclusion, but we are the domestic security agency of the United States, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that there are no more 9-11s, which, you know, basically means, you know, they, they continue to focus on the issue to the exclusion of, you know, many other things. Well, let's, let's take that then to the, to the last question. Do you think that we are likely to be surprised again by another 9-11 style attack, not necessarily hijacking, but another dramatic attack? Or broadly speaking, is the, is the intelligence community really on top of this uh, problem enough that, that, that we're not likely to be surprised? Well, in terms of the foreign threat, you know, from al-Qaeda or, you know, the, the proliferating number of affiliates, uh, you know, we just saw uh, a terrorist attack by a, a, a group in Nigeria called Boko Haram, which uh, you know nobody has paid any attention to. I think from uh, the threat from overseas, you know, by international terrorist groups, has been beaten down to the point where the threat is low, but it still exists. And we're always, you know, from this point for the rest of our lives and our children's lives. Uh, we're going to have to invest huge sums of money to make sure that there are no more 9-11s uh, being planned and executed uh, from abroad. I think more realistically, the threat that we as Americans face is already here in the United States in the form of uh, you know, uh, angry, disenchanted individuals. Uh, another Timothy McVeigh, you know, uh, to use an example. Uh, probably an American citizen born here or emigrated here. Uh, the profile is indistinct, but I think, you know, I think most of the analysts that I've spoken to believe that, uh, you know, if there is going to be another uh, terrorist outrage in the United States, it probably will come from within rather than from without. 
Well, Matthew Aid, you've you've done it again. Another another fabulous uh, piece of work on uh, some of the most secret, but also most important doings of the U.S. government. Uh, again, for for our listeners, his new book is Intel Wars: The Secret History of the Fight Against Terrorism. Matthew Aid, thank you so much, and come back again to the International Spy Museum. Thank you very much. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.